This is Fans on the Run, a podcast made by, for, and about Beatles fans. And now, here's your host, Ethan Alladay. All right, everyone, welcome back to Fans on the Run. Out of all of the Beatles podcasts out there, this is one of them. <laughs> you know, that's, you know what? Uh, I'm ch- I'm I'm learning how to be less self-deprecating. I've gotten some feedback saying the self-deprecation is laid on a little thick. Honestly, I don't really care, but you know, I have an audience. I guess I should try and please them. All right, you know what? I we we have a very special guest for you today. I I say that every week. Most of the time, I don't mean it. Just kidding. To all my other guests, I love you. But we, we have a, a phenomenal guest. Not only did this person... I I had scheduled for an interview uh, a couple months back, but uh, fate decided to hand me a, uh, a bit of a blow when I woke up with such a sore throat that I couldn't talk. But now, finally I'm back. Mystery guest, how would you describe yourself? I would describe myself as someone who enjoys life who enjoys pop culture, who enjoys the celebration of art in all its forms. And since this is a Beatles podcast, that celebrates someone who celebrates the Beatles. It's kind of beautiful, man. I, I already had an introduction written, so I'll say, our guest today is a man of many talents. He's an author, he's a television historian, he's a legend of the yearly Beatle Fest. Please welcome Walter J. Walter J. Podrajic. Wally, welcome to Fans on the Run. Thank you so much, and thank you for pronouncing the last name correctly. So my, my hat's off to you. As someone with a last name that is hard to say, I, I understand the struggle, and I actually practiced. <laughs> Very good. Well, thank you. That's, that's most appreciated. Um, I just want to take this opportunity to apologize for pronouncing your name wrong in several other of my episodes. <laughs> I think I said Podzeriak on one. I don't know how, but, you know, I got it right. And that's all that matters. Well, my uh, one time they were writing about the uh, Beatle Fest, now known as the Fest for Beatles fans, uh, in, I think it was People Magazine had a little blurb, and it referenced me as Walter Podrosnik or something like that. And I went, okay, fine. Uh, you know, close enough. They got the first name right. So. Yeah. Do you prefer Walter or Wally? Uh, Wally uh, Walter, when I introduce myself, Wally, when people talk with me. So you've covered both. Uh, so we could do Wally from here on in. Perfect. Because that's how that's how I know you. That's how I met you at the Beatle Fest. Mm-hmm. You, you were just Wally. The, the mythic Wally. <laughs> well, thank you. I don't know if you you would remember me from the last Chicago Fest for Beatles fans. I was the young whippersnapper who swept through the uh, trivia. You know, you young whippersnappers just impress the heck out of everyone else. But a word of warning, don't let the rest, don't let you scare the rest of the people from participating in trivia. Uh, it's a lot of fun, and actually, one of the ways that Beatle fans, I think, first connect with each other. It's not necessarily a favorite. It's not necessarily best or worst, but instead it's, hey, did you know? 
Mm -hmm. That starts the conversation. Um, and, and I found that uh, almost from the beginning of talking about the Beatles with, with my peers. Hopefully I will become one of those peers and not just another young whippersnapper. You should trademark young whippersnapper and go from there. I, I should, though, shouldn't I? I have a list of words that I've been meaning to trademark, so I'll, I'll add that to the pile. So I'm, I'm going to jump right in. Wally, how did you first discover the Beatles? Oddly, I am exactly the correct age to be first generation fan there from the beginning. And like so many of my uh, uh, people in my age, I was in front of the TV the night the Beatles first performed on Ed Sullivan. Who's However, he? I was watching The Scarecrow of Romney Marsh. Oh. Walt Disney's Wonderful World of Color. Because I was interested in this performer, Patrick McGowan, and mm -hmm. I thought it was an absolutely engaging story. And so the idea of turning from that to anything else uh, didn't occur to me. Well, until I ran into my uh, female older cousin who wanted to watch the Beatles. Mm -hmm. And so we came to a compromise. And anyone who uh, watched the Ed Sullivan show knows that Sullivan knows how to tease. And so the Beatles ran at the beginning and the Beatles ran at the end. So what we reached was, all right, when the Beatles are on, fine, we'll watch the Beatles and the Ed Sullivan show. Uh, and then when they're off, we're switching channels and going to the one I want to watch. And then we'll keep checking in during commercial breaks or whatever. And if the Beatles are back on the screen, fine, we'll stay there. So that was a, you know, switch over from CBS to was it ABC? Uh, or, uh, yeah, that would be correct from a CBS. Uh, uh, actually it would, uh, it would have been on, on the wonderful world of color by then it would have been NBC. Uh, okay. That was the home of the Disney show. But here's, here's the thing. Even after seeing that I was aware of the Beatles as a pop culture phenomenon. And first time I heard a Beatles record, I mean, I, honest, if somebody took out a 45, put it on the turntable and let it spin was in what's a what's a 40 oh 45? i'm sorry it is a seven inch piece of plastic squished down with a big hole in the center and uh, so uh for all our our inept listeners out there yeah actually i was just thinking about that looking uh you even have to say uh, the size of the hole because it was kind of an odd thing. Like, wow, how, how does that fit on the, oh, you need a an adapter to put this yeah. disc on your turntable. I'm happy to see. One of the many know. reasons why I hate 45s. Yes. Well, also they're too short now. Uh, yeah. But uh, right now, turntables are certainly making a comeback. And I have a new turntable uh, in my uh, stereo setup now because I have a few too many records that were going underplayed or unplayed. And so I like, for instance, when the Beatles Christmas album, I'm sorry, the Beatles Christmas singles 
were released as a box set a few years ago, you needed a turntable because <laughs> they were only on vinyl. They weren't digital. They weren't uh, on CD and they weren't on an album. So that was the way that you listened to that new presentation of the, uh, the Beatles Christmas uh, uh, discs. But uh, for me, back in elementary school, uh, some uh, upperclassmen uh, played, uh, put the, uh, I want to hold your hand on the turntable and mimed to it. Mm -hmm. That was awful. And it wasn't helped by the fact that uh, you're talking about a school grade portable turntable with terrible speakers. And that was not necessarily the best impression you were ever going to have of the Beatles. And no. nonetheless, I knew of them. How could you not know of them? And, and I was just fascinated by the phenomenon. Uh, though, when did I become a fan of the music? This is odd. It's not until a little bit later on the timeline. And that would have been through the Beatles cartoon show. I was channel surfing, because you mentioned uh, I'm a TV historian, so that means part of me is very interested, has been very interested in uh, TV presentations throughout my life. So I was mm -hmm. channel surfing, and I came across help. Uh, and one of the sing-alongs. Um, yeah. And so there are the words on the screen. The follow the bouncing ball. Follow the bouncing ball, and... I said, wow, this is good. I mean, it was just a totally spontaneous, wasn't trying to impress anybody, wasn't, I just came across it, heard it, and was impressed. And so that opened up the, let's see what else they've got uh, in me. And over the next couple of years, uh, became more and more interested in the group, uh, chronicling, just because because I missed the beginning, because mm -hmm. I wasn't there blow by blow as a fan, as a music collector, when I came to the records, I needed to find out where they came from. What was the context? Uh, I, I will tell you the first Beatles single that I purchased at the time of release, so not as an oldie, mm -hmm. was Eleanor Rigby, Yellow Submarine. The oh, wow. First, so it wasn't until yeah, about 66. Yeah. The first Beatles album that I purchased at the time of release, not filling in the gaps, was Sgt. Pepper. Oh, wow. And now that doesn't mean I was unaware of the other songs because I was picking them yeah. up as oldies. But in terms of, oh, there's new Beatles music coming out. I wonder what it's going to sound like. Those are the ones that became the definers uh, for my appreciation uh, of the group. And flipping the cards a little bit ahead, years later when Harry Castleman and I met in college uh, and started collaborating on telling the Beatles story, researching the Beatles, et cetera, it was a perfect mash, match because Harry had had an older brother and sister, and he was there from day one following the Beatles music. So he knew the front end, and he was actually starting to get a little tired of it. 
uh, as they uh, they came into the uh, Sergeant Pepper Magical Mystery Tour. Or at least he was saying, "Oh, well, that's different. It's not the the, the group that I knew." Didn't mean he didn't like it, but yeah. he didn't have that same freshness. Whereas I was, that's where I started. So yeah. when we started figuring out how to tell the story of the Beatles, and we did this first on a 17-hour, uh, 46-minute live radio show uh, in at Northwestern University on the uh, college, campus radio station WNUR, we co-hosted that. Uh, it dovetailed perfectly because it, my curiosity as to as how we got there was balanced uh, by me with an intensity is where we are now, so to speak, mm -hmm. the Apple, the solo, etc. And so uh, the two of us uh, meshed perfectly uh, in being able to uh, tell a fuller and more appreciative uh, story of the group. And I'm glad you actually brought him up because I was going to ask, what can you tell us about Harry Castleman? Harry Castleman, <laughs> Harry Castleman is brilliant. He's an attorney. Uh, he lives on the East Coast. We haven't been in the same city for decades now, but we, mm -hmm. we met each other at Northwestern. And we met each other over Beatles, essentially, because he had a, a proposal for a weekly Beatles show. And I remember sitting next to the uh, program director who was trying to decide, do we want to do this? And he goes, yeah, sure, let's, let's give this young man the opportunity to play Beatles records every week. And my thought was, well, what's the point? I mean, everyone has all of those, don't they? Mm -hmm. And uh, I listened and said, oh, oh he, he seems to know what he's talking about. That's great. And so after a couple of weeks, I uh, came to him. I was trying to figure, well, what can I impress him with? And so I found the Capital Starline reissue uh, original only to the Capital Starline. Again, these are 45s, golden oldies, mm -hmm. uh, with misery on it. That had never really. I know the 45s you speak of. I'm sorry. I know the 45s yes. you speak of. So I walked in and, uh, after he'd finished his show and said, "Ever seen this?" And as Harry later re recounts with a smile, he looked at me, lied through his teeth, and said, "Of course, I know about that." And that began our uh, did you know this, did you know this, um, one-upsmanship, one which eventually became collaboration. And it didn't take um, long for me to say, okay, how can I help promote Harry's uh, weekly radio show? Because I wasn't on it, never spoke a word on it. And so I did some research at the library and compiled uh, the chart movements for all the Beatles records. Uh, that had been released in the U.S. because, much to my delight, the campus library had bound volumes of Billboard. And so I just went through and started uh, chronicling them. And that, of course, helps answer the question, what was a hit? What was not a hit? What was in a successful B-side? What wasn't a single at all? But is a is a familiar uh, song if you start following the Beatles, and mm -hmm. so um, I put together a little promotional uh, sheet talking about uh, Beatles singles on the charts, and that uh, arrived towards the end of uh, his uh, series run. So thereafter, uh, we became not only close Beatles research buddies, uh, but recognized at the station uh, as the ones who, okay, they get all the Beatles stuff. 
So if something comes in from a record company, and at that time, Apple was very active uh, with a lot of uh, solo and other artists, Harry and Wally need to see that. And so that culminated um, in our farewell, so to speak, to the uh, station and the university uh, when we did the um, live radio history which was our first opportunity to say, okay, if we're going to tell the story, how do we tell it? And you actually don't tell everything. You learn how to choose the illustrative moments that help make the point. And we, we switched off. We didn't actually co-host in the sense of both on mic at the same time. I did a couple hours. He did a couple of hours. We flipped for the solo artists. It was John and Paul and then George and Ringo. So flip of the coin, uh, and then uh, the winner of the flip got to choose between the two. I won both coin tosses. Uh, and so I between John and Paul and George and Ringo, maybe I'll flip it on you. Who do you think I chose? I'm, I'm going to assume that you didn't pick john and paul oh no i mean between john and paul so it's either john or paul and then george or ringo so between uh those two did i pick john or paul did i pick george or ringo i'm gonna say you picked john and ringo you are absolutely correct oh uh, wow and, and i because i found their stories more interesting uh obviously respecting all of their talents and and at that point they mm -hmm. they had each had successful uh solo albums and all so it wasn't like i'm caught with the you know, there's nothing good to play but rather for john he just would go anywhere yeah. and, and and to me it's like this is a story that's going to be fun to follow and for ringo actually by then ringo had been uh, one of the most uh, active in terms of popping up on other people's records and mm -hmm. so that in itself was fun to follow. And he liked country music. And so that gave the opportunity to uh, uh, pop in cover versions and such of uh, uh, classic rock and classic country and all. And that would all be that was all mixed in with our uh, into our special. And um, and Harry uh, got George and. Uh, and Paul obviously did a great job. There's plenty to play for both of them. I think we ended uh, at that time with the latest uh, release, which would have been Paul's uh, 1985, uh, the last track on, uh, on Band on the Run. So uh, there was a story to tell. We enjoyed telling it. We enjoyed sharing it. And we had fun doing it. And that's when we saw how many people like to share in the conversation mm -hmm. um you you throw trivia questions out it's not that people say i know something that you don't but it's like i, I want a chance to uh to say that yes i i'm on your wavelength i know what you're talking about and uh so we had a trivia contest that went with the uh uh that went with the radio show and leading up to it we had a uh a display at the local, uh, at the university library of Beatles memorabilia, uh, the, uh, articles about them, uh, et cetera. 
Uh, I even ended up on camera when a local um, TV station decided to do a little piece about that. And so we realized that we had a particular specialty in beetleology and decided, well, we should do something with this. I don't know what, but let's do something with it. And so I went on a quest. Um, we also ended up out in Washington, D.C. Uh, as interns and such, but that's, that's a whole separate story. But driving from Chicago to Washington, D.C., I stopped at universities along the way, essentially showing um, folks there notes from our radio special and saying, do you think we could get anything out of this, a book, an article, et cetera, and generally uh, received uh, positive encouragement. And so landing in Washington, D.C., uh, we pitched our first book, sent it out to, uh, sent uh, pitch letters to about 22 different publishers, still waiting to hear from two or three of them. Um, but Any day now. Any day now, Yeah. And we landed um, at a, a, a publisher in uh, Ann Arbor, uh, Michigan, actually technically Ypsilanti, Michigan, which is near Ann Arbor. And uh, they were very enthused. And because and this book was uh, all together now. All together now, which is a reference book. It, it was, tra it was track, it is, it tracks uh, Beatles releases. Uh, and by then we had developed our vision and the vision was a world view, not to get alternate, uh, you know, sleeves from uh, uh, Mexico or sleeves from Japan, not that kind of worldview, but rather the release worldview. In other words, mm -hmm. when the Beatles issued something in Great Britain or the US, those were the ones that counted because those were the markets that they were primarily aiming towards. And so, um, when we assembled the uh, records in Altogether Now, we chose to present them in chronological order uh, as opposed to lists of numbers or alphabetical lists. Those would be in the indexes. Uh, and mm -hmm. we say, this is actually the unfolding story. This is uh, the Beatles in the US and this is the, uh, this is the Great Britain EP. And then these are some of the same tracks showing up on a US album. And by the way, we also defined Beatles records as records with which they were associated as producers, performers, mm -hmm. and therefore you would have other entries then um, and, and writers. So you would have other entries than just their own releases. You would have them turning up uh, on, um, on a cream recording. Uh, individual members, you would have them turning up uh, or giving a track, uh, giving a song uh, to a Billy J. Kramer or Peter and Gordon. Um, so, and then that continued over the years. It wasn't just the first flush of Beatlemania, but it was them as they continued through the years. Uh, and the reason we thought this was so important is if they think these artists are interesting, and we have respect for their artistic sensibilities, let's explore what these other artists do. And so it was a wonderful excuse uh, to discover uh, other performers contemporary to the Beatles. And the flip side 
the great appreciation for the music that they decided to cover. So that leads you to Johnny Burnett, that leads you to Chuck Berry, that leads you to Louis Armstrong. If you start looking at uh, Ringo's uh, Sentimental Journey, for instance, Uh, Mm -hmm. and that actually is a very important way of understanding the Beatles is they weren't, and I'm using air quotes here, they weren't merely rock performers, they were musical performers who appreciated the depth and breadth of music out there. They would, it's no surprise when uh, Paul McCartney would do a uh, great American songbook uh, for Kisses on the Bottom, because they listened to that. They mm-hmm. appreciated that. They, they listened to music from, uh, from, uh, from pleasure and also as professional songwriters in the making. How, how are these songs structured? Is that a clever take? Listen to that word, or at least it's good. And so what all together now, our, our first book about the Beatles brought, was literally all of those threads together and saying to fully appreciate the Beatles and their appreciation of music and their place in music, uh, you have to be open to listening to David Bromberg uh, with George Harrison contributing a a, a song called The Hold Up. You have to be open to listening to um, uh, Buddy Holly and and Chuck Berry and Roy Orbison. Hey, no surprise uh, who ends up being one of the Wilburys then. Uh, So... Once you take that approach to things Beatle, it's not just do you have their official albums. Okay, I got them. I'm done. Instead, I have the key to appreciating music, a broad spectrum of music, a history of music, a century of music uh, catered, curated for us by the Beatles. Sorry, that so that answers your first question. Your second question would be So how did you go about getting all this release info about the Beatles? Cause at the time, you know, it nothing was officially out there, like with the the release dates. So how did you how'd you go about collecting that information? Not just for the US, but for also like the UK. I mentioned that we embarked on this when uh, Harry and I were in Washington, D.C. And mm-hmm. the in Washington, D.C., there's the Library of Congress. Mm-hmm. And we lived at the Library of Congress. Because it turns out, not because of the Beatles, but because of history, they had bound volumes of Melody Maker, and New Musical Express and Disc Weekly, as well as Billboard and Variety, plus short runs of of other specialty publications. So that became our starting point, where what we would do is uh, we would have intense days at the Library of Congress and pour over the music publications there, taking notes on everything, 
realizing we knew what was going to happen in the future. So when we're looking at a 19, and we started a few years before they uh, broke in, in Great Britain. So as you're reading uh, these publications in 1960 or 61 and all, you are seeing the hints of what is about to come. And mm -hmm. so I'm talking about everything from, oh, such and such artist uh, was visited by uh, Ringo uh, last week. I mean, that's part, it, it was a weekly music news mag uh, newspaper, which we didn't mm -hmm. have the equivalent to uh, in the US. <laughs> so, so extracting information from there provided the foundation now it's the library of congress they also have a special recorded sound collection uh which i was able to uh check uh, bound volumes of international uh releases uh for uh i mean this is where catalog numbers come in this is where lists of um song authorship uh, the, uh, all the songs authored, one of the things we're very proud of is that we were penetrating uh, pseudonyms and such, not just for Beatles music, there wasn't that much, uh, because obviously John Paul uh, credited themselves. But when they were doing cover versions and such, or when we were talking about their influences, we wanted to get the correct uh, spelling, the correct identification of who wrote these things. All that was in the Library of Congress, in, in the card catalogs and in the uh, song registration. And what the Library of Congress didn't have, just hop in the car and drive up to New York City to the Rogers and Hammerstein collection of the, at the Lincoln Center branch of the New York Public Library, which had collections of other British magazines that the uh, Library of Congress didn't have, uh, mm -hmm. popular gramophone uh, lists. Uh, that's where I first saw the um, the uh, canceled uh, Love is Strange uh, wing single. I was flipping through the index of singles that were scheduled to be released at that time, and I come and go, oh, wait. All right, here's the Apple catalog number. Let's find the flip side. Okay, that's listed. Put that on the shelf. Wouldn't have found it any other way but to meticulously pour through then contemporary publications as well as archival. Uh, the Library of Congress goes back to the beginning, like the late 1800s of publications like uh, Variety, um, the early part of the 20th century for the uh, British publications. So there was a history there that was accessible to us pre-internet um, and because we were in DC, we were able to access it. We could not have written this, that uh, we could not have done the research nor written that book in any other city uh, mm -hmm. apart from Washington, DC. Now, there's something else you did uh, that kind of tickled my interest when I was reading about you. Uh, the Decca Tapes album that was released in 1979, uh, you wrote some liner notes with Harry Castleman um, about the history, uh, but of course, the history was fictional. How did you go about uh, writing a fake history of the Beatles on Decca? We couldn't resist it. And, and to this day, I don't know who put that collection out. I really don't. It was a friend of a friend of a friend who said, 
Would you be interested in doing some notes where we're going to collect these tracks and put them on an album? Um, and it, it would be helpful to have, uh, it would just make it a classier operation uh, if, if we had liner notes, uh, maybe a little bit of history in there. So Harry mm -hmm. and I sat down and said, you know what would be fun? Let's make all of the record uh, the song information correct let's get mm -hmm. that down cold um but let's treat this album not as a pirate or a bootleg but as a reissue of a short-lived issuing of an album from right before uh the beatles had their first um um Parlophone releases. Uh, and so we concocted a timeline history, which made one simple twist on the familiar tale. Instead of rejecting the Beatles, Deck assigned them. Mm -hmm. and, and so these were the singles that were released, and they did not do well. And Brian Epstein was... Um, uh, was convinced Decca was handling them all wrong. And so they went and he negotiated with uh, um, Parlophone and got a deal. We were also taking advantage of the fact that there was this huge gap in Beatles history. Mm -hmm. It was never really clear why did Parlophone sign them? Because mm -hmm. the little bit that we had that was in, in the public uh, stream, had them rejected by everybody, but George Martin uh, was the one who came around later, kind of, even though um, EMI had already rejected him, they sort of came in the back door and, and went with uh, George Martin. And uh, so uh, then the rest became history. So we said, well, since we don't really know what's going on in all that time, why not make it up? And so we just had tremendous fun um, again, treating each of these uh, the concocted singles as real, reviewing them in effect, and in reviewing them, they, they're all almost all cover versions, and so it was an excuse to talk about the original uh, recordings and, and how well they did or didn't do um, in delivering their, their versions of them. Um, and after we finished the whole tale, we said, all right, we've got to be honest. And so the last line is, the untold story of the Decca tapes is a work of historical fiction. And then we used a pseudonym, uh, Grid Leak, as the uh, author of the liner notes, and didn't reveal officially uh, who that was until maybe a half dozen years ago or so. Um, because oh, wow. out of respect for the people who were involved, whom we don't know, and mm -hmm. also because, well, enough time will have passed, so, so who cares? Uh, but we had tremendous fun doing that. And also it was an experiment in how close can you get to the truth and not be the truth? And so... Mm -hmm. I, so help me, I had people call me up after they had read that and said, oh, well, you know, you know a lot about this history. Yeah, yeah. So is this what really happened? So the Beatles had this release on DECA and then it was cut out. Now this is a reissue. 
And I went, oh, I know what you're talking about. Did you read the last line of those liner notes? And so, um, so it was, it was fun. And I didn't realize at the time that uh, as, as later being a, uh, a teaching uh, history, um, uh, not only music history, but political history and such, that that was a good example of how you can create, in effect, fake news. Mm-hmm. So you were creating fake news before before it was before it was a thing before it was in vogue. Yes. Yeah. I when I was reading about that, that was that was just awesome reading the fake liner notes of, you know, records that didn't exist. And especially from a pre-internet perspective, because you from what I, I read, it said you actually used like real DECA catalog oh, numbers. Yeah. yeah, which which again, you could only do uh, in Washington, D.C. at the Library of Congress. We, we basically looked at, all right, if they had a release, its number would have been, and so we started pegging numbers that sequentially would come about right. I mean, they, we didn't get all of them right on, on, on the nose, but it was close enough. So then we turned around and in a separate article in, in our third Beatles book, uh, The End of the Beatles, we then debunked our own fiction without ever admitting that we had written the fiction by giving mm -hmm. the actual record releases that had those catalog numbers that had been given to the fictional uh, releases that, that we had created. Were <laughs> any of them of note? No, not, not really. <laughs> It would have been well, but but again, that was sort of the point. Uh, you didn't want to come up with something that people would have said, "Oh, wait, I I have that uh, um, uh, a record by uh, a, a, a regular artist that everyone's heard of, and clearly that's fictional." So no, we we definitely went through the uh, just far enough from reality so that you could check it, but only with great difficulty. Uh, I, I, just, I just got such a kick out of that. Well, and, and you know, that oddly is, is also something that uh, illustrates what the Beatles inspire. Mm -hmm. Because the Beatles really want to make you not copy the Beatles, but to be inspired by what they were doing and you come up with your own creative endeavor. Mm -hmm. um, I'm looking at the, uh, the list of uh, the DECA real numbers. You have um, Lionel Bart, Give Us a Kiss for Christmas. Uh, Edmundo oh. Ross and Orchestra Desafinado. So uh, that was not going to, uh, records like that were not going to be in a uh, uh, pop record collector's uh, collection. So, so we would be fine. But, Available at your local Sam Goody. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Um, but, but yeah, the, the, what we were doing is what so many people love doing. I mean, frankly, what you're doing now is an example of I like Beatles. Uh, I like people who like Beatles. Let me use this as an opportunity to express my creativity. And uh, that's been the Beatles story for decades. I mean, there are so many artists 
Are you that? Say, I remember watching the Beatles on Ed Sullivan, and that's the day I knew I wanted to be a musician. Or mm -hmm. um, I saw uh, John Lennon's writings, and I decided I want to be a painter or a poet uh, or, or a fiction writer. I mean, all of those uh, come into play as part of being a fan of the Beatles. And that's why I think that they have uh, endured long after uh, so many other uh, fan um, sources of fan affection uh, may, may have faded away. Uh, that is, the fans and admirers, and so, in some cases who, who eventually become colleagues, um, <laughs> went on inspired by them. It's not just sitting there saying, let's play this 1965 release for the millionth time because music never got any better than that. Instead mm -hmm. saying music was incredible when they did it. And I want to take some of those same daring chances in my own artistic endeavors. Speaking on uh, the same kind of note, uh, what did the Beatles mean to you? That's really the heart of it, which is they were daring. They found a way to stay true to themselves they found a way to be a success doing what they wanted to do and what they wanted to do uh ended up constantly evolving so what did the beatles mean to me I, i'll use john lennon as example um where you got the i'm going now to the late 60s early 70s as he became more politically active mm -hmm. uh He's looking at the uh, maelstrom that he had been a part of and saying, let me step back. Wait, are there other things that I can do that build on the doors that this is open for me? Mm -hmm. And he decided it was worth taking a chance on making some political statements, supporting particular causes, or even just having that affect the way that that he uh, composed uh, his his lyrics. But yeah, but we aren't talking about the doors. We're talking about the Beatles. Yes, those are those are the doors we're opening. Yes. Now, now, here's the thing I loved. If you ever watch the uh, his interview, uh, he and Yoko were on the Dick Cavett show. Uh, for a couple of episodes, uh, but but just listening to to radio interviews as well, is Lennon was ready to say, "I tried this; it didn't work. Toss it aside. Let's try something else." Mm -hmm. In other words, everything was not holy grail when he tried it. Instead, it was, "Let's see what happens." Uh, I think it would be fun to try doing this, and. If it didn't work, they, all four of them, were in a comfortable enough position that they could weather it and try something else. And so what the Beatles mean to me 
is the okay to take a chance. The urging you to say, you were thinking of doing this, go do it. If it doesn't work, pick yourself up, dust yourself off and start all over again. And uh, they managed uh, to do that, especially when you're looking at their solo careers. Because remember, I came into them um, later as, as they were later Beatles. So like the White Album is so much, you could tell this is a John song, this is a Paul mm -hmm. song, etc., and leading directly into their solo stuff. And I just tremendously admired the fact that they were sort of growing up in front of us, trying to... Um, uh, that is, they ended up having the most successful careers anyone could ever imagine. And now they start in a post-career. Mm -hmm. Now they start, um, um, what do you want to do when you grow up, so to speak? And um, so, I mean, they're, they're in their 30-somethings. Th yeah. And they say, oh, well, I've done this, I've done this, I've done this. Well, I can do anything I want. What do I choose to do? And seeing what they chose to do becomes in inspiration, basically. And I even mentioned like George Harrison in terms of going back and forth between, let me show off guitar, let me look at spirituality, let me uh, uh, understand what it means to uh, try to make sense of the world. Um, mm -hmm. When they uh, did their benefits, uh, when, when you know George did the concert in Bangladesh, uh, John did the one-to-one concerts and all, uh, they were saying, "Look, I realize this gift I have." Uh, in St. John's case, I know if I say I'm going to do a show, people are going to turn up. I don't need the money, so let's find a cause that I want to get behind and use my notoriety uh, to maybe open some minds maybe uh, increase awareness. Worse that happens is that people come in, enjoy a show, and are vaguely aware that there's this cause. Um, and and I, I admired the fact that they chose to spend their capital on things other than them. Mm -hmm. uh, kind of piggybacking off of the last question, uh, why do you think that the Beatles still matter in today's society? They matter in a couple of ways. Um, one is recognize that <clears throat> to some people they don't. Obviously, mm -hmm. generations have gone by and not everyone is as uh, ardent a, uh, a Beatles aficionado as we are. Uh, nonetheless, uh, I love this quote from the... Uh, uh, book Making Music. Uh, it's edited by George Martin. And uh, Paul Simon was one of the people who were discussing the art of songwriting. And uh, he says that one of the uh, frustrations of pop music is that the average age of uh, the bulk of the purchasing audience stays about the same. Mm -hmm. you know, teenage. But the artists grow older. And yeah. so that in part partially answers that, that answers the question of why do they still matter to a particular generation is that age is still around. There's just a new bunch of them coming through the cycle and they are first discovering something that was perfectly attuned uh, to uh, their age group. It just happened to be 50 years ago. 
Mm -hmm. uh, so they are discovering beetles. Uh, second, the means of uh, presenting their music, uh, they, they, they have curated themselves, especially um, since they settled their various respective lawsuits against each other and, and created Apple as, as a very strong uh, entity. They've managed to go into each platform creditably and uh, thoughtfully and with uh, following sort of the, the their late manager, Brian Epstein's dictum, it has to be good quality. Um, they've carried that through so that if you're just discovering uh, streaming, they're the Beatles. Prior to that, you were just discovering um, CDs, there were the Beatles. You were just discovering retrospective sets, there are the Beatles. And so, um, they've managed to remain uh, relevant. Uh, th their music has managed to remain relevant because it's, it's always there. They've managed to make it so that you can find music by this group, no matter what your entree point is. Then you go to generations passing it on. Now there's going to be the rebellion uh, generation where, oh, that's, that's granny music I'd rather listen to. And then you fill in the blank for the, the latest. And that's fine. Because they are of the status that someone, say, from the early part of the 20th century would have been. If you're talking about like a Louis Armstrong um, mm -hmm. or you go a little bit more on the timeline in, into uh, maybe a Frank Sinatra as a performer, there will be people that come later and say, oh, let me explore this that was very important in its age um, beyond the fact that I've just heard these songs for the first time. We have generations of people that have passed on their love of Beatles. And so someone was interviewing me once. And so I turned the tables on him and said, all right, what is your first Beatles song? What's the first one you remember? What's your favorite, in effect, the, the one that started you off? And he said, oh, Octopus's Garden. And I must admit, I paused for a moment and say, Octopus's Garden. I mean, not a bad song. It wouldn't have been the first one I would have thought of. And then I realized what he meant by discovering the Beatles is as a kid, that's a perfect song. Mm -hmm. Yellow Submarine, perfect song. And then you go from there to explore other parts. And he confirmed, yeah, I mean, he knew it because that was music that had been played, maybe not literally in the crib, but early enough that, that he would have heard that music um, as um, an impressionable child. And so there's that special spot in your heart for those first exposures to music like that. And that carries through, even if you take 10 or 20 or 30 year explorations to other parts, you might circle back and say, let me look at that again. That was pretty good. Going to Beatles conventions, what consistently strikes me is the multi-generational aspect of it uh, and the fact that while the first generation, second generation, and third generation might be quite knowledgeable about history, the up-and-coming generations can match them song for song. Did you know this? Did you know that? I can think of some young trivia competitors who can do very well without having been even um, around, without having been around in 1964, can still uh, certainly handle plenty of, uh, 
uh, Beatles trivia questions. So it's gener it's generational um, pass. It's passed from generation to generation. But what they're passing is solid. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you mentioned uh, the Beatles conventions uh, could be the Beatle Fest, what have you. Uh, do you have any particular favorite memories of Beetlefest's past? Oh, yeah. I love the Ruddles. Besides meeting me for the first time. Oh. And actually, I'm going to interrupt you there. You mentioned the Ruddles. When you were talking about the Beatles uh, finally wrapping up their legal stuff, I, I have to quote the Ruddles at least once per episode. Uh, Nasty sued Dirk, Barry, and Stig. Barry sued Dirk, Nasty, and Stig. Stig... Oh, no, it was... Uh, Bear... Uh, uh, I, I can't even remember the quote. Uh, Barry ended up suing himself. Yeah, or yeah the punchline yeah. is he, he sued, sued himself. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And now I, I remember what I was also going to say. You, I think the Beatles have one of the most well-curated catalogs uh, in the history of... Well out of that whole legacy generation of classic rockers like the who the stones their music has always been consistently available it's never been out of print uh and you've always been able to find it consistently i i was gonna say that but now i want to talk about the beetle fest okay yeah. um the uh, well, since we're not doing this on, on camera, I'm wearing a Bonzo Dog Doodah Band uh, T-shirt. Uh, I love the Bonzos. It's from a reunion, um, a, a tour um, for the Love of Dogs uh, a few years back, um, and uh, meeting Neil Innes in person and since i do um at, at the fester beatles fans i conduct uh, interviews and such and so to have him as a guest on a panel or just solo uh was amazing uh i remember one time uh we had uh, a really bad house piano on the stage where he kind of looks at, has this been tuned uh the keys kind of stuck whatever and he nonetheless just tore right into it and used that as accompaniment for songs, for stories, etc. And favorite Beatle Fest um, memories was when there was a Ruttles reunion. Uh, and it wasn't just uh, Innes, but other members. Um, and I've been told about this. Uh, they, it was like doing advance for early Beatles in the sense of we had to figure out a route to get them to, they don't have this room anymore, but there was a separate uh, discussion arena area. And we ended up going through the kitchen, up some side stairs, through a, through a back corridor to we were uh, on the uh, wings of the stage and then uh, brought out the ruddles and let them go. And then later that night, they uh, were on the main stage and did, I think, a half dozen songs uh, of, uh, from their catalog. And I, I was standing next to someone and said, okay, th this is the best ever. <laughs> I mean, this, this is, uh, God, God love every other guest that's come by. And uh, if um, 
Paul Oringo came on stage. Obviously, that would be a, uh, you'll never forget that moment. But in terms of an appreciation for Beatles and Beatles legacy, the Ruddles are it, and to see them perform, the perfection of those parodies cannot be overstated. Uh, the uh, the there are there have been times, and I would not be surprised if if this has happened to you, where you might hear uh, a Ruddles uh, recording in the background, and for a second actually have to stop and say, "No way, is that the Beatles, or is that the Ruddles?" Especially that's if you hot. come in towards the end of it, where you go, "Oh yeah, yeah. oh wait, no, that's that's not the Beatles, that's the Ruddles," <laughs> and um, so. That would be an absolute favorite and uh, heightened by the fact that Neil Innes was as intelligently articulate and kind and uh, curious a person as you were ever going to meet. And the fact that uh, the convention, the, the, uh, the Fest for Beatles fans gave us the opportunity to do so uh, is uh, I, I consider it uh, one of the the, the blessings um, of of pop culture. Uh, I've I've gone on record saying this, and I'll say it again. I think all you need is cash. The Ruddles <laughs> uh, movie is the best documentary ever made on the Beatles. I concur. I think George Harrison would agree with you as well. Oh yeah. Um, I, I think wasn't he quoted it's like, oh yeah, watch it, watch the Ruddles. That's the yeah. story. <laughs> but it, when I've I've tried to get some of my friends to understand the Beatles more, I've sent them the link to All You Need Is Cash, mm -hmm. and I say, watch this, you'll get it. I'm I'm gonna hit you with some quick fire questions. Sure, sure, sure. Okay, I will keep these very short answers then. All right, who is your favorite Beatle? Um, depends on the day of the week. Uh, I will say, now nah, depends on the day of the week. Um, in this order, then I'll say John, Paul, George, Ringo. I mean, that's also the order of how you say it. Well, that's also the way, um, that, uh, talk about trivia. Uh, one time the Beatles fan club, of, which briefly had itself uh, renamed the Apple Tree, and they, they changed the order. Uh, I, I don't know if they put George first or whatever. I think just for the, you know, to, 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 to be a little fresh. And I saw a copy of John making all sorts of scrawls on that Apple Tree uh, issue and says, no, it's John, Paul, George, Ringo. And I think that's accurate. What is your favorite Beatles song? That um, is both quickly uh, identified and then could change by the day of the week. But I will tell you, I saw her standing there. What a great way to capture what they were about to do, what they were absorbing from the past in rock and roll, and yet making their own. Mm -hmm. uh, so it would be, uh, I saw her standing there. Now, on the flip side of that, what's your least favorite Beatles song? Here's where I'm going to be unfair to the Beatles, because it's not their fault. You're allowed to be unfair to the Beatles. 
um, there's a handful of songs, and it's not just Beatles songs, it's some of the solos as well. Um, Harry Castleman and I have, have compiled uh, what we call the usual suspects list. They're great songs. I've just heard them one too many times. And so if they come on the radio uh, or if they, you know, come around on the turntable, um, I will have a tendency to want to skip over them. So, so for instance, um, probably Let It Be and Imagine would be the two that immediately come to mind. Uh, and, and they both actually have some similar, uh, they're, they're slower, they're a little more somber, and, and it's like, okay, I get it, I get it, I get the message, okay, I get it. Uh, I concur on. completely, although I would add to that list, uh, unfortunately, Hey Jude. Oh, oh, I didn't give you my whole list, I just gave oh, you okay. the top two, but Hey Jude would be uh, 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 up there as well. Again, recognizing what a wonderful song it is, uh, but wanting to hear, like, okay, let me throw this at you, like the Godfrey Daniel version of Hey Jude uh, instead of the, the, the Beatles. Do you know the Godfrey Daniel version? I will pretend that I do, so yes. Yeah, it, it is a, uh, treats it like a Hey Jude, don't make it bad. So it, it changes eras. Mm -hmm. and uh, and treat and treats it like that uh, and so sometimes uh beatles songs benefit from being reinterpreted because then you come back to them refreshed mm -hmm. um but yeah i'd say uh let it be imagine and uh hey jude would be among those that are not bad songs i just need to put them on the shelf for a while you didn't say Mr. Moonlight, and for that, no, no, I'm no, happy. No, actually, I like Mr. Moonlight. Thank you. Thank you. I I have to defend that song way more than I should. <laughs> but what was the other one? I sort of stepped on. You're going to give another one. Uh, Yesterday is another one of the oh, songs. Oh, Yesterday, unfortunately, I, I put in the, um, in the Let It Be category, but because yeah. Let It Be has been played so often, it's actually managed to eclipse Yesterday. Yesterday used to be the I don't need to hear this again, but those others have, uh, by increased rotation, uh, taken its place. The song that is in heavy rotation on, you know, classic radio that baffles me completely is The Long and Winding Road, which I, I get confused every time I hear that on the radio, thinking, does anyone actually like this song? When Paul McCartney was doing one of his solo tours, I sit next to a friend. And so Paul, that night, his first venture back to uh, Beatles, uh, he was uh, playing the, the psychedelic piano. Uh, mm -hmm. And, all. and uh, so he starts at the long and winding road. And the gentleman next to me said, he said he wanted to go back. I wish he'd go back a little further than <laughs> that song. Oh, God. I, I don't like the Phil Spector version, and I like the non-Spector version even less. Well, uh, yes. Okay, well, we're definitely on the same page for that. Uh, because what I... Res the, DJ Larry Lujak, uh, deceased uh, many, many years, but he was a legend in Chicago. Um, I, he weighed in on the Long and Winding Road once, just... Briefly says, look, that is Phil Spector taking Paul McCartney at face value. 
and saying, mm-hmm. this is what you're saying, and I'm going to amplify it. This is, this is it. I'm not changing what you're doing. I'm just uh, upping the ante a bit. And uh, so, uh, and, and Lujek also said after he played that once, yeah, Paul McCartney putting us all to sleep. <laughs> so apparently we've discovered that um, the, 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 the let it be uh, long and winding road coupling um, has its share of detractors. And I, I quickly add, by the way, uh, in talking about any uh, Beatles song, um, especially if you're going to be uh, hyper critical about it and mocking, say, yeah, but it's still better than anything I could ever come up yeah. with. So given that, mm-hmm. uh, now let's talk about you're asking for favorites or, or, or ones that I'm tired of. Well, those are the ones. I'll tell you a personal favorite, and this is getting not necessarily obscure, but it'll be appropriate because Flaming Pie is coming out. Mm-hmm. Um is uh calico skies okay i think that that is paul at his melodic lyrical best getting right to the point and if when asked to name a favorite paul mccartney solo song that actually is in my top five i mean that 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 will come up very quickly and so uh you'll you'll see further focus with the flaming pie reissue uh and i think that was one of the highlights not only of that album but uh of the uh of his uh, solo career um and and i would contrast it with something like little willow little willow Mm -hmm. is also a nice song but there's more to calico skies there's more heart there's more implied backstory there's there's more poetry uh i think uh in 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 that one so does paul still have it yeah well at that moment that's an example that he still can be brilliant post beatles what is your favorite beatles album We have to say, do, do do we want to make the distinction between British and U.S.? Because, of course, for the longest time, uh, that uh, was the source of a different description. Mm-hmm. So given that, the American Rubber Soul is my favorite Beatles album. That's a popular choice, because... It's it's not the same album as the British version. Yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, the British album uh, gets some of the, some of the tracks plucked, put onto things like Yesterday and Today and all. Um, but I can say when Paul McCartney um, in his first uh, in his uh, Wings Over America tour, uh, one of the songs he Beatles songs he picked to include was I've Just Seen a Face, mm-hmm. and I'm pretty sure people weren't recognizing that from the side two track whatever of the yeah. help album as issued in the uk they were recognizing it from rubber soul yeah well the british version wasn't the one that influenced brian wilson to do pet sounds now was it no 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 yeah i mean i it's still a little whiplash inducing putting on the american version because I, I i've i grew up with the british one. Oh, okay so I'm I'm used to hearing drive my car sure. kick it off, and hearing you know, 
I've just seen a face. It's like, what's that doing there? Yeah. And, you know, Nowhere Man was stripped from the album. Mm-hmm. Which, you know. But that's that's neither here nor there. What that's a your... different discussion. Yeah. Uh, but in uh, but I, I would uh, argue that that is an example of even if it was misguided, even if it wasn't artistically driven uh, necessarily by the uh, the bean counters on the uh, uh, U.S. side of the ocean, what emerged in Rubber Soul, uh, U.S. version, was um, spectacular. And to their credit, didn't have a single. Yeah. I mean, imagine an American album not having a single. At the time, that it's, that was Michelle it, was not a single. So, one of the few times Dave Dexter Jr. got it right, uh, he he uh, swung and you know knocked it out of the park instead of getting a foul ball. Yes. What is your least favorite Beatles album? Do you mean Beatles group or counting solo? Because you really cop out with solo and just find a, a, a driving rain, for instance, and say, "Yeah, driving pain." Yeah, so I mean that, that that that's an easy one in that sense. Um, but if I you're mean saying, Beatles as a group, Beatles as a group, uh, then you have to I have to cop out with uh, depends on the day of the week. Uh, I just I just have to pause and say that's one I cannot come up with an instant answer to because even something like the help soundtrack, which is half not Beatles, uh, is still a pleasure to listen to because it seems to it, it showcases uh, their their songs uh, and just those songs and then lets you re -immer uh, immerse yourself into the uh, the film because you've had um times to appreciate the uh, instrumental accompaniment to some of your uh, favorite scenes i mean if you really 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 wanted to uh push it um oh I'll, uh, this will be a sort of a cop out uh, well you're this is a, this is a bit of a hard question so i i allow cop outs okay in cop some out cases i be... even let people pick compilations because they have oh, such a hard time yeah. But, but well, I won't go that that route because uh, yeah. because that that's that's easier. The um, you know the Beatles' twenty greatest uh, you know number one hits with the truncated version of Hey Jude. No, yeah. I, I don't think that's what we've all been waiting for. But no, I was going to give the Beatles at the Hollywood Bowl uh, the original version, or frankly the the the, the re remastered version. Uh, the Beatles on stage um, were an incredible experience listening to the recording of the Beatles on stage is not as satisfying as it would have been um, in person. And Paul and Paul later, um, but, but I think all, all of them managed to show that it was as much a technical limitation in the fact that they, by the time we saw them in the U.S., th this was not them at their prime. Uh, but you know, Paul has has turned his shows into magic, frankly, um, and uh, using all the 
tools um, of the trade that, that are available. I was at the George Harrison um, uh, Dark Horse Tour, the Washington, D.C. show, a Washington, D.C. area, and really? it was fine. Uh, and you'll notice that's the uh, show that he's pulled his bonus tracks out from uh, for like his Genesis books and all. So maybe I happen to come there for uh, everyone who's in fine voice, fine, uh, fine performing st uh, stead. I thought George put on a good show. Uh, Ringo knows how to do uh, the, the type of shows that they did at the beginning of their career. They, they were one of the acts that were there to entertain people along with a dozen others. So three, five songs each, or maybe they'd be the headliner towards the end. Um, so uh, so uh, Ringo has demonstrated that, yeah, you can do uh, a live show of Beatles music and it could sound really good. And even John, um, even John on the... Uh, uh, live piece in Toronto. Uh, th there is a sense of discovery there. Um, okay, here's here's the target that would hit if, uh, for many people would be uh, sometime in New York City uh, for for Lennon as a solo. Yet even then, I found myself fascinated by the fact that he dared to do it. Mm -hmm. uh, I I would cringe at a couple of the lyrics. One song title you don't even want to say. Yeah, it was a single, <laughs> um, and uh, yet he did it. Yeah, he said, "Let's give this a shot." And um, I was once doing a call-in show in California, and someone wanted to ask me about what they uh, thought it was a fairly obscure song, and I agreed it was. It was "The Luck of the Irish," mm -hmm. which is on sometime in New York City. And that caller thought it was beautiful. And I had to concur. Uh, even if you're uh, making political statements, you haven't lost your ability at your best, most talented moments to, to, to uh, craft something beautiful. <laughs> that boy, uh, see, see how I'm, I'm cooperating, being very short with these answers. Yeah. Funny enough, if I, if my memory serves me correctly, the, 20 Greatest Hits album with the, as you put it, truncated version of Hey Jude was the first Beatles album that Kid O'Toole had, our friend Kit. Oh, really? Yeah, I had her on the show. And now, here's my favorite part. I get to turn it over to you. Is there anything you would like to plug? Oh, uh, go to uh, MediaWally.com and you can see uh, my latest um, entry there is uh, a piece that was also uh, in the publication Beetle Fan um, that uh, talking about uh, McCart the 50th anniversary of uh, the McCartney album, uh, the context of it, etc., which uh, it was a fun essay to do. Um, and... Um, MediaWally.com also gives you a little bit of a uh, entree into my uh, TV world. I'm co-author with Harry Castleman of multiple books, including the one we're quite proud of, uh, Season by Season History of Television called Watching TV, Eight Decades of American Television. And it it does actually it does to television what we did to Beatles, but it was just much, much harder, mm -hmm. which is take the story chronologically and put it into context programming and 
politics and the real world and schedules, schedule grids and trivia. And uh, I'm very pleased with this. And so watching TV, uh, eight decades of American television, you can get it most um, inexpensively by going to Amazon. I think those are the two main things to, to plug at the moment. Last thing with this show, you're known for your trivia at the Beatle Fest. I would like to ask you one piece of Beatles trivia. I knew it. You're going to set me up to be embarrassed. So, okay. This, this is a real toughie. There are four Beatles. Name two of them. Uh-huh. Uh, I'll go by the middle name of Paul. And... Um, the middle name of Ono, uh, and that would take care of John and Paul. Um, does that work? That works beautifully. Walter J. Podrajic. Wait, oh, sorry. I, I was going to toss words. you one of the first trivia questions that I ever had uh, between, uh, with, with a friend of mine. And it oh. was when we realized how well we all, we, we knew the songs, and it was, can you name the song? And we had shorter and shorter uh, excerpts from the songs, you know, so in terms yeah. of lyrics. And so got it down to one word. Anyway, does that ring a bell for you? <laughs> the word anyway. The, the way I said it, anyway. For some reason, the first thing that came to mind was the Dave Clark Five. Oh, okay. Any way you want it. So that'll be my answer. Okay, well, that's pretty good. Actually, it was uh, Penny Lane, though she feels as if she's in a oh, play. play. Anyway. anyway. And what amazed us is when I tossed that out, he looked like Penny Lane, of course. <laughs> that's how intensely we are in. We, we will do a Dave Clark 5 uh, uh, sidebar later, because, of yeah. course... As with everything, there is the semi-obligatory Beatles connection. Oh, yeah. Thank you for... Wal Walter J. Podrajic, thank you for coming on the show. You're welcome. It was a pleasure. And to everyone else out there listening, thank you for listening. You can go home. Dance on the Run is produced by Ethan Alexander. Additional voiceovers by Richard Fulton. This has been a Showtown production.